Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Let me take you back to the year 1836, when, in February on the 25th, Samuel Colt received an American patent for the Colt Revolver, the first practical adaptation of the revolving flintlock pistol. On the 29th of February that year, the first running of what would become known as the Grand National Steeplechase takes place at Aintree, near Liverpool. The race, which would later be regarded as an unofficial precursor, is won by the Duke. On the 17th of August, the Marriage Act establishes civil marriage and registration systems that permit marriages in non-conformist chapels and a register of general births, marriages and deaths. On the 2nd of October, Charles Darwin returns to Falmouth in Cornwall aboard HMS Beagle after a five-year journey collecting biological data, which he will later use to develop his theory of evolution. But our event happened on the 10th of September, 1836, and the trial the following year. As early as 7am on Wednesday the 5th of April, 1837, a huge crowd of people surrounded the Guild Hall in Gloucester, and when the doors opened at 9am, a tremendous rush was seen as people jostled to grab a seat to watch the very interesting trial of the year. Within a few minutes, every corner of the court was completely packed, and many were turned away. At precisely 10am, Mr Baron Bolland took his seat on the bench, and the prisoner was called in. Charles Samuel Bartlett was accused of murdering his mother-in-law, Mary Lewis, at Stapleton, on the 10th of September, 1836. He shot her in Lippiet's Lane with a pistol at close range in order to receive her insurance. Bartlett was the leading man of Ingleston's San Parel Theatre Company, who had been playing at the nearby annual fair at St James Bart in Bristol. He had been married to Sarah, Mary's daughter, for only a couple of months before the discovery 
of his mother-in-law's body. In court, Charles was dressed in a blue coat with a velvet collar and metal buttons, a plaid waistcoat and drab trousers. When he was called to plead, Charles said, With the word of God upon my heart and lips, I can firmly and truly say, I am not guilty. During the trial, he would suck on an orange and drink beer. The circumstances which were detailed by a great number of witnesses were these. The prisoner was a young man of decent parentage and education, but of a somewhat dissipated disposition, and he had followed a wandering life as a member of a strolling company of players, frequenting fairs, racecourses and other such places of entertainment. In August 1836, he visited Monmouth with his troop and met Sarah Lewis, the daughter of a shoemaker. Not long after, he was married to her. He spent a few days with his new wife and her friends before rejoining Ingleby's company. Sarah's father, James Lewis, was called to the witness box in court and said, I live in Garth Cottage near Monmouth and I am a shoemaker by trade. My daughter married the prisoner on the 16th of last August. I was present at the wedding. The prisoner received £47 on his marriage. Mr Burton of Monmouth was the executor to my children's money. Had a conversation with the prisoner, I believe the day after he was married, or the day before, I am not certain which. He advised the prisoner to make the best use of the money and lay it out and furnish them with a little house. He said he was already provided with that by some friends he had in London. The prisoner was told that he would not be entitled to any more money until after my wife's death. I don't think I mentioned the sum he would be entitled to. I told him that after my wife's death, he'd be entitled to something. When he was with me at Monmouth, I observed that the third finger of his left hand was cut off by the joint. I think a little of it was turned in just before the joint. He told me that he was a cabinet maker by trade. I did not know that he had any other occupation. He told me that he had cut off the piece of finger with a chisel at work. About the 1st of November, I received a letter from Bath. It was from Bartlett, and the signature below is my daughter's, and there is more of her writing on the back. My wife went to Bristol in consequence of that letter, and to put our son with bad eyes into Guinea Street Hospital. She left me on Monday the 5th of September. Her name was Mary. I never saw her alive again. In consequence of information I afterwards received, I went to Bristol, I believe on the 13th of September, went to the Mason's Arms. I saw the body of my wife. James Lewis collapsed at this point, weeping with all his heart, and time was given for him to recompose himself before he continued. The business she had in Bath was concerning a robbery committed by the prisoner in Monmouth. That letter was an answer to one sent by me. This week, the word I give you is almoner. This is the Lord Almoner of England was responsible for receiving property forfeit to the Crown and the belongings of suicides. These were given as alms to the poor. On the 9th of September, 
Bartlett was seen in the possession of a horse pistol, and when he was backstage during a performance, he sent 16-year-old Henry Lovell to buy powder and percussion caps. When Henry asked if he should take the pistol with him to make sure he got the right size ammunition, the prisoner said no, but did get a piece of bread from a fellow entertainer backstage and moulded it into the correct shape and size to fit the pistol. Henry said that he had often been sent out to get caps for the gun, to be used in the show, but never to get balls. In the end, though, he was unable to buy any. Previously to this, Bartlett and his mother-in-law had had some differences, but on Saturday the 10th of September, they left his lodgings together and were seen walking on Stapleton Road. She was wearing a new bonnet, a dress with a zigzag pattern on it, and a dark shawl with a deep border and some blue ribbons to decorate. She was also carrying an umbrella as the weather appeared changeable. They entered the Mason's Arms and ordered gin and water, but when it arrived they both said that it tasted a bit funny, so Bartlett said he was going to complain about it. He was gone quite a while, so Mrs Lewis asked the young lady sitting at a nearby table with her two young daughters if she could go and see what was taking so long. Meanwhile... Bartlett had borrowed a knife from the landlady, saying that he wanted to cut a piece of wood. He then went out into the backyard where the firewood was kept, and on his return to the house, witnesses said that he looked quite agitated. Having then paid for the liquor, which they had finished, he and Mrs Lewis left. The woman with her two daughters, Mrs Light, hurriedly paid for her drinks and dashed outside. For some reason, she felt that something just wasn't quite right about Bartlett. She saw the couple walking up the road in the direction of Frenchay and then turn down a place called Tebbets Lane, leading towards the River Froom. When she returned at about 6.20pm, she heard that a woman had been shot in the lane. She went to the Mason's Arms and saw the body for herself and knew it was the same woman she'd spoken to earlier in the day in the pub. When the shot rang out, people locally started going out to find out what was going on. When they got to the lane, they discovered the body. A good description of the murder scene was given by the landlord of the Mason's Arms, Robert Bedford, who was called to the spot by one of the locals who had originally found Mrs Lewis. Robert said in court... Thomas Davis took me to the lane and a body was laying there about 100 yards from the Turnpike Road. Lippitt's Lane is only altogether about 180 yards along and slopes down from the road towards the water. There was a branch of a tree hanging over the spot where the body was. On one side of the lane is a wall, on the other a hedge and a bank. The bank is about 4 or 5 feet high with a hedge on top. The head of the body was lying up the lane towards the turnpike road. There was no gown on the body. I saw the bonnet lying rather on one side of the body. I looked at it and saw that shots had passed through the back part of it. I felt the arm of the body and it was rather warm. The bonnet had marks of powder on it. There was a good deal of blood lying under the head of the corpse. The corpse had gloves on, both drawn down to the knuckles. I helped a witness over the wall and he came back with an umbrella. We took the body to my house. The first doctor to examine the body was Dr Alloway, who had just happened to be passing at the time. 
When he gave his statement in court, he said that on examination, he found a close-range gunshot wound on the lowest part of the back of the head. He went on to say that when he later did the post-mortem examination by order of the coroner, he found eight shots outside the skull. They had gone through the scalp and rested against the bone and were mostly flattened. He also found four shots in the brain. The day after the shooting, Bartlett went to the Mason's Arms to see the body. The landlord, Thomas Davis, was there and removed the sheet that had been placed over the corpse. The sheet had only revealed the face when Bartlett put his hands to his face and exclaimed, Good God, it's my mother-in-law! Thomas then asked him more questions, such as her first name, but he couldn't answer. What struck Thomas as odd was that Bartlett could describe the woman's jewellery quite accurately. When Bartlett tried to leave the room, Thomas stopped him and said, I think you had better not go yet, sir. It appears you are the only person that knows this poor woman who is dead. Bartlett demanded to go as he had to see his wife, whom he said was coming to Stapleton. Thomas calmly looked Bartlett in the eye and said that he had better sit down then, and when his wife turned up, they would bring her in to identify the body too. PC John Nichols was downstairs at the time, and Thomas sent for him to come up to the room at the same time that he was stopping Bartlett from leaving. The young constable then stood guard to the door of the room so that Bartlett couldn't escape. The young lady who had come to the Mason's Arms with her two daughters and sat near Mrs Lewis and Bartlett the previous day, Mrs Light, came to the room and positively identified Bartlett as a man who had walked off with the deceased. The officer then took a firm hold of his arm and never let go. Bartlett was held overnight in the pub and his wife did turn up and ask to stay with him, but was refused. Although this request was made before she saw the body of her mother. And now it's that time of the show where I offer you a book of the week. And this week we have A Respectable Trade by Philippa Gregory. The story goes that Josiah Cole, a small dockside trader living in Bristol in 1787, has grand ambitions to join the big players of the city. So he decides to marry Frances Scott. She has social contacts and he can offer her protection. But can she live with the respectable trade? of sugar, rum, and slaves. She can until she meets Mahura, once a priest from ancient Africa and now a slave in England. Philippa Gregory's books can be hit or miss, but this does give you a glimpse into what life must have been like in our shameful part of Bristol's history. Another book I recently read was on the Stockholm Syndrome. It started off terribly, but I thought it was great by the time I finished it. Bartlett's young wife Sarah was taken into the room where her mother lay. Bartlett was there too with the police officer. And when Sarah saw her mother, she fainted. 
and when she recovered, the first thing she said to the prisoner was, Oh, Bartlett, how could you do it? He looked at her coldly and said, Ah, what, you accuse me of murder too? She replied, I do, Bartlett. You are the man that killed my mother. You are the man that shot my mother. The next day, Mrs Light, who had talked to Mrs Lewis and Bartlett in the pub before, was asked to come to the Mason's Arms and in front of a packed room, which included a magistrate and Bartlett, pointed out the man who was with the dead woman before her death. When Mrs Bedford, the landlady of the Mason's Arms, was brought into the room, she instantly, and without being asked, pointed to Bartlett and exclaimed, that's the man who was with the dead woman yesterday. While Bartlett was being held at the Mason's Arms, his lodgings were searched by Sergeant Thomas Waltham from the Central Bristol Police Station. When he arrived, he found three boxes, two open, but the third locked. A locksmith was called and the box was opened. Inside was found two pistols and a blackened stick with powder which was found in the pocket of a coat in the box. The stick fitted perfectly into the pistol. The pistol was still filthy and showed signs of recently being used. There were also grains of gunpowder found on some clothes. Bartlett was then transported to Stroud by the Charlford mail coach. There was a lot of evidence against Bartlett, but the most damning witness statement came from Eliza Trott, who was doing some ironing at her father's cottage in Stapleton. From the window, she could clearly see the lane and recalled seeing both Mrs Lewis and Bartlett walking down to the river. During Saturday, I was ironing near the window and I saw a man and woman at the bottom of Lippitt's Lane. They were walking. The female was about two yards before the man. The man's right hand was behind him. I lost sight of them in about two minutes. From my window, I can only see part of the way up the lane. The lane doesn't go exactly straight and therefore we can't see all the way up. After they got out of my sight, I heard the report of firearms. It was about three minutes from the time I last saw them that I heard the report. I know there's a field that belongs to Mr Ricketts, which adjoins the lane. From the window where I was, I could see into the field. About a minute after I heard the report, I saw a man in the field, close by the hedge of the lane. It was about the same place I first lost sight of them. The man continued in the field a moment, looked about him, and then returned to the lane. And now, let us continue our sorry tale. The following Monday, after the murder, the police started to search for Mrs Lewis's clothes. They looked in the field next to Lippet's Lane, and in the pond there, they found the dress, shawl, and some of the ribbon trimmings, under some flat stones in two feet of water. The defence which was set up, that Bartlett had left his mother-in-law immediately on quitting the mason's arms, and that the pistol which had been found in his lodgings was one which he had been in the habit of discharging at fairs, in order to attract attention to his employer's booth. He had written a statement the day after the incident, which was read out in court. I lodged at number 8 Barton Street. Slept there last night, got up yesterday morning at 10 o'clock, breakfasted and went to the fair about 11 o'clock, and there met Mary Tickle. I had some conversation with her and walked with her to Mrs Samuels, and returned from there to the fair where I remained some time and had some conversation with Mr James. I told him there was a cap left for him at my house. I then walked into town to overtake Jones. 
walked by the side of the carriages and had a conversation with Miss Price and Miss Ling. When I returned, I met James, and he told me that he had been to Mrs. Bartlett, who said that the cap was locked up and she would not let him have it. I took him home with me, and the deceased was there with her daughter. I remained at home till half past two, and went nowhere with the deceased. I was not on that road at all. I know that my mother had a little money, which is to be divided, I believe, amongst the children, eight in number, but I did not know whether it was to be paid at her decease or when. I have two pistols at my lodgings. The trial lasted two days, and then a unanimous verdict of guilty was returned. When Bartlett was asked by the clerk why the sentence of death should not be passed on him, he threw himself into a theatrical performance and delivered a very, very long speech about his innocence being judged by mere mortals, and he was not going to beg to them. This speech was so long that it produced an extremely strong and painful sensations throughout the court. The judge put on the black cap and said, Charles Samuel Bartlett, the jury, after a long and intensive consideration, have found you guilty of the murder of Mary Lewis, your wife's mother. What object or motive you could have had for the commission of such crime, I know not. The murder you have committed, it is true, is not marked by many of the atrocities which often mark crimes of this description, but, to my mind, it is characterised by an atrocity of a deeper character. Your wife's father, when he gave her to you, and with his blessing and the little pittance he had saved from his earnings, told you that there was more money which he would be entitled to upon the death of his wife, and if it was from a desire of possessing yourself of that money that you committed this crime, then it is a murder of even greater atrocity. You have asserted now, as you have asserted in your written statement, that you are an innocent man, but the jury have thought otherwise. And as far as I have been able to observe, they have investigated your case carefully, anxiously, and patiently. I have not often, since I have been on the bench, been called upon to deal with crimes of this character, and when I am called upon to do so, I can assure you, nothing is more painful to me as to be obliged to take away the life of a fellow creature armed as I am with the authority of the law. The sentence upon you is that you will be taken hence to the place of execution, where you are to be hanged by the neck till you are dead, and the Lord have mercy on your soul. On Saturday the 15th of April, 1837, the sentence of the law was carried into effect upon the wretched criminal in Gloucester. He had been visited by the clergymen of the jail, but they couldn't get him to confess his sins. Throughout the whole of the preparations for his execution, he was calm and steady, and he walked from his cell to the platform without any appearance of nerves, except that when his face saw the gallows, it became very pale. He held a Bible and a handkerchief in his hands and bowed respectfully to the various officers presiding over his final operation of the law. He asked the executioner to request the spectators of around 5,000 to take off their hats, and most of them complied. When he arrived on the drop, he gazed at the assembled crowd, 
and looked like he wanted to talk. The executioner motioned for silence and perfect stillness prevailed. Bartlett spoke in a calm and impressive manner and as if talking to the circus crowd at his previous job, he went on to say, Englishmen and fellow countrymen, I have a few words to say to you and they shall be but very few. Yet let me entreat you, one and all, that the few words that I shall utter may strike deep into your hearts. Bear them in your mind not only now while you are witnessing this sad scene, but take them to your homes. Take them and repeat them to your children and friends. I implore you as a dying man, one for whom the instrument of death is even now prepared. And these words are that you may loose yourselves from the love of this dying world and its vain pleasures. Think less of it and more of your God. Do this, repent, repent, for be assured that without deep and true repentance, without turning to your heavenly Father, you can never attain or can hold even the slightest hope of ever reaching those bowers of bliss and that land of peace to which I trust I am now fast advancing. I will say a few more words. All good Christians and repentant men that behold my disgrace here shall, at least I trust they will, behold my glory hereafter. And my last words are, I am an injured man. The cap was then drawn over his face, and in a few moments the drop fell from under his feet. He struggled for a few minutes before becoming very still. For some back in the day facts. In 1959, the USSR successfully launched the Lunar 2 rocket towards the moon, where it landed 36 hours later. Also on the 12th of September in 2003, US country music singer, songwriter, and guitarist Johnny Cash passed away. On the 15th of September 1940, during World War II and the Battle of Britain, the RAF claimed that British forces had shot down 185 German planes on this particular day. And lastly, on the 15th of September, 1859, Isambard King de Brunel died, aged 53, who was buried at Kensal Green Cemetery in London. What more news? OK. Um... Breaking news, just in, a truck loaded with Vicks vapour rub was overturned on the M5 near the junction with the M4. Surprisingly, there was no congestion for eight hours. I hope you enjoyed today's tale from the past and agree with me that it was brought to life by the talented voices of Simon Green and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Sam Vernon, Molly Jeffries, and Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group. 
Hey everyone, I'm Andre. And I'm Mariah. And we're the hosts of Pretty Nice. The weekly podcast where we talk anything and everything. Like horoscopes. Why rain is the worst. Our favorite Broadway musicals. The best songs of all time. Embarrassing Facebook photos. Elevator etiquette. Breakfast revolutions. And a whole bunch of other nonsense. If you love a podcast that feels like you're kicking back with your BFFs or just hanging out and chatting with friends, Pretty Nice is for you. You can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Buzzsprout, or your preferred podcatcher. We're also online at prettynicepodcast.com, on Instagram at prettynicepodcast, Twitter at prettynicepod, and Facebook at prettynicepodcast. Bye! Bye! You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>